Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this Advent season, uh, I mentioned last week, we don't, we actually don't stop and preach an Advent series every single, um, every single year. Uh, we've, so far, the practice has been every other year. Uh, I would envision keeping that up. But this year, uh, during these, uh, this Advent series, we're, uh, sort of taking a, a high-flying view of the Bible. It's sort of asking the question, um, how does the, the story of Christmas, how does the story of the birth of Christ fit into the larger story of the whole of Scripture? Uh, last week, we looked at Genesis 1 and creation and uh, the connection that uh, Christ has in actually taking on the form of the created being, actually taking on flesh uh, as if created, though he was not, um, taking on our flesh, taking on the image of the creation because the creation had failed in bearing the image of the Creator uh, faithfully and accurately. Uh, This morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 and consider the fall and what what, what impact, what a, a connection that has with uh, Christmas. As you know, it's our practice to stand when we read Scripture. However, um, because it's, we're going to read the whole chapter, and because that's relatively lengthy, and because standing is not commanded in Scripture, and so just to sort of reaffirm for you uh, that it's not like, well, the Bible tells us to, and so we have to. There, there are examples of it in Scripture, but it's not a clearly given command we're not, we're not violating any law of God by sitting whenever we read God's Word. Uh, so just out of, uh, out of respect for the fact that we are going to read the whole chapter, uh, you may remain seated. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, for your help. It is a familiar chapter, it's a familiar passage, a familiar text, one that we could gloss over easily, one that would be very tempting for us to say, well, uh, we've, we've done this before, uh, we have read this chapter before, I know this chapter, I don't really need to listen. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, for hearts that are hungry and thirsty for the truth of your word. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Came this close to saying, you may be seated. Talk about habit. Um, maybe, you're, um, maybe you remember your, your sort of high school English class. Uh, and the, the fact that you can sort of design, uh, you can draw stories. Um, you can take a book, you can take a story and, and diagram how you know, the, the book starts and, and characters are being introduced and the plot is sort of being introduced and... Um, you're getting some development of, of characters along the way, and then you hit this rising action uh, that starts to sort of climb, and you can sort of feel the, the story, the book building, uh, and then it hits sort of a turning point, a climax, some conflict point where um, that has to be dealt with. You deal with the conflict, and, and then, then the falling action and the resolution of that conflict, and, and the rest of the story goes on from there. I have a feeling, I guess I've not read every book ever written, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of them don't reach that high point, that conflict point on page three. But that's basically where we are. The story of the whole of Scripture, and we're already sort of at that turning point, at that point of conflict, and we're three pages into the Bible. Notice, first of all, that uh, at the beginning, before this chapter begins, uh, in the Garden of Eden, there is a sure 
peace. And you see this really at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 25, uh, we're told that the man and his wife are both naked and they're not ashamed. We're, that's going to matter. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get that in a little bit. We're gonna, that, that comes up, obviously, in this chapter. Uh, their nakedness will, will matter. It will be kind of become a, an important point. But as chapter 2 ends, there's, all right, there's just no easy way to say this. They're living life without clothes on. And there's nothing, they don't even have a reason to think I should cover myself up. I mean, like there's, the thought doesn't cross their mind. They're so comfortable, literally, in their own skin and with each other, that there's absolutely no shame whatsoever. You, you get the sense that, that we, as the reader at least, are told that they didn't have any clothes on, and they didn't even notice it. You have this impression that they don't, of course, they didn't know any better. They were made that way and are still that way. They don't know anything different. But it's, it's, it's odd, as we'll see in a few minutes. I mean, one of the first things they think to do after rebelling against God is to cover up, is to make clothes. Well, as long as there's this perfect sure and certain peace in the garden between them and each other, between Adam and himself, Eve and herself, and between them and God, there's absolutely no reason to cover up. There's no reason to, to make clothes. There's no reason to, to hide themselves. There's absolutely no shame. We don't know. I guess we technically don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the fall. Uh, we don't know how long they were there before the events of chapter 3. It, it's, if you're just reading through the Bible, you know, if you're doing more than a chapter a day, if you're, if you're doing three chapters a day, or five chapters a day, you, you go from one to two to three, and in your mind, that's sort of like they were created, and then all of a sudden, they're eating fruit. Like, it's, it almost feels like possibly the next day. It could have been a week. Could have been a month. Could have been a few months for all we know. We don't, we're not told how long it is. One of the reasons we, we wonder is actually verse 8 of chapter 3. Notice, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It sounds like something God had a habit of doing. I mean, how would they know they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden if they had never ever heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden before? It's a sound they knew. I mean, they knew to say, hey, here comes God. Hey, Eve, He's coming. I hear Him come. Right? I mean, they had to know what the sound was. I mean, how'd they know? I mean, some of you have been deer hunting. And you're convinced there's a deer. Uh, it's a bobcat. You know, oh, it's, there's something coming. Oh, it's just those squirrels again. Right? I mean, how do they know it's not just a leopard walking through the garden? How do they know that that's what they're hearing? Well, it's, it's, it must have been something they heard. So 
you're led to think that some amount of time has elapsed between 225 and the events of chapter 3. They, in the garden, were at perfect peace with themselves, with each other, and with God. The fact that He would take a walk in the evening through the garden, it matters in chapter 3 because apparently it didn't matter what, however many times He did that before. They're, they're at perfect peace with their Creator. They have absolutely no reason to be embarrassed. They have no reason to be afraid. They have no reason to be ashamed. They have no knowledge or awareness of the fact that they could make clothes for themselves even before they sinned. None of that seems to cross their minds. There's nothing to hide. There's no reason for shame or fear. There's no reason... Because they've been perfectly, they are perfectly accepted by each other and by their Creator. We need to, we need to understand the level of sure and certain peace there was in the garden. Because immediately in chapter 3, in the first six verses, we now find a shaky peace. You can almost you can almost picture if you're sort of imagining the, a picture of the story in the first six verses of Genesis three it, that piece is precarious it's tenuous it, you just you sense that it's teetering and it could fall it could collapse how is this going to go and so in the first six verses of Chapter 3, we find a shaky peace. This serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field. We, we know this, but we learn for certain in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20 uh, that this is Satan himself. That he uh, approaches Eve one afternoon with a question. It's a question that doesn't require a whole lot of fact-checking. Uh, there's, 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 there's a lot going on in Washington right now about what's true and what really happened and how did this really happen and who said this and who really did that and who told so-and-so to go and cover that up or do this. Or th- There's a lot of fact-checking that has to happen in Washington right now. This, this is simple. Right? I mean, you don't need CNN. You don't need Fox News. You don't need Google. You don't need to grab your phone and go, well, let me see if what he said is, if what, it's, it's simple. It's easily verifiable. He asks the question, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, the answer is no. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. In fact, he said, Quite the opposite. He's, he's actually, and it's, it's so easy just to look back at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He puts the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's, it should be easy enough to know that that's not at all what God said. There's a, there's a warning here for us. How often does sin and temptation come our way? And it starts with, did God really say? Imagine just how frequently you and I deal with that voice. Did, did God really say this? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, absolutely not. That's not at all what He said. We would do well. We would do well to, to read and to know God's Word well enough that we understand it rightly and can literally, as, as Jesus did to Satan himself, quote it right back to that voice that says, did God really say? Well, no, this is what He said. Or this is a right understanding of God's Word. We would do well to know God's Word as a defense against sin and temptation. Eve had God's clearly revealed will. Eat whatever you want. Except that one tree. All these other thousands of hundreds of trees, dozens, I don't know how many trees were in the garden, but it sounds like you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. That's supposed to sound like a really liberal gift to us. Except that one tree. She's asked a question. Simple fact-checking question. She had God's clearly revealed will. And she wasn't ready for the answer. Because notice in her response, she doesn't get it right either. Look at what she says in verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I suppose it's possible to assume that God meant to imply don't touch the tree, but He didn't say that. That's not what Genesis 2 says. She adds to God's requirement. She takes God's revealed will and says, Yes, He said, Eat what you want. Don't eat of that one tree. She got that much right. And then she said, oh, and by the way, he also said don't touch it. That's not exactly true. Now she's, she's adding to God's Word. We would do well to know and understand God's clearly given commands. God's clearly revealed will. But attacking God's Word isn't the only plan of attack that Satan has. Because look what he does in verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, he attacks God's character. He attacks their his love for Adam and Eve. He essentially says, die? Ah, you're not going to die. That's not really the problem, Eve. Come on, you know better than that. You know the real problem is God's being selfish. He's being stingy. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll be like Him and He doesn't want you to be. See, He's being selfish and stingy with His authority. He's being selfish 
and stingy with his honor and glory. He's being selfish and stingy and, and, and wants to keep rule and authority over you for himself. And he doesn't want you this freedom. He doesn't want you to enjoy this. Look how good it is. See how mean God is? That's exactly, that's not exactly what the serpent says. It's essentially what the serpent says. He knows that, that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. He doesn't want that. He's questioning God's character. He's, he's questioning God's love and provision for his people. Sometimes that's our struggle, right? I mean, sometimes when we deal with sin and temptation, it's because we really think, but that looks so good. Why would he keep that from me? I don't want to do what he says. I want to do what I want to. That's autonomy. Literally means self-law. I want to be the law unto myself. I want to govern my own life. I want to be out from under his difficult, oppressive, selfish, stingily given, strings attached love. And I want to have all the autonomy and authority unto myself. We complain about his selfishness, his unfairness, when we could and should be focusing, focusing on his love and his generosity. Because that's at the heart of sin. It's a, a longing to be God. A longing to replace Him with ourselves. Verse 6. Eve says, I mean, I, I know He gave us everything. He gave us all these other trees. I know there's this liberal gift of every fruit of every tree in the garden except one. And all she can see is the except one. How uncaring of God. How jealous of God. How selfish and stingy of God to keep a tree back from me. We do that, don't we? We count His gifts and His, His love and care and provision for us and then go, but there's this one that I really wanted. There's this one that I think is really far more important and far more valuable than any of these loving, caring gifts he's given me. And, and if he's not going to let me have it, well, then it must be because he's just mean and selfish. And so I'm going to go get it anyway. That's, that's exactly what we do. Take Deuteronomy 29, 29, for example. It's a, it's a verse many of us know and we run to uh, for comfort and uh, encouragement. The first part of the verse reminds us that there are secret things out there that God knows and we don't and we're not supposed to. And then we stop reading right there and go, oh, well, good. There's some secret things. God knows them. I don't know them. Oh, and this verse actually says I'm not supposed to know them. If I were supposed to know them, he would have given them to me. And since he hasn't told them to me, clearly it must be because I'm not supposed to know them. The whole rest of the verse is but what he has told you, he's told you for you and for your children so that you might know them and do them. We don't know that part of the verse. We complain about the part he didn't tell us. If you want to have a good Christian talk radio, you better be prepared to talk only about 
the second coming of Christ. Because that's all they want to talk about. If you can't talk about Daniel and Revelation, nobody gets a Christian talk radio working through the Gospel of Luke. You've got to be in Daniel, well, just a couple of chapters of Daniel. And this end times and pre-trib and rapture and all this, what's it? You have to deal with sort of the unknown. You have to major on the things He hasn't told us and ignore the things that He has. We unfortunately spend a little too much time on the things we don't know. If we spent as much time on the things we have been told, we'd be far better off. Notice verse 6. Adam is standing right there. Her husband's right there with her. And so she turns and hands him the fruit. Now he should have, as she reached for that fruit, he should have knocked it out of her hand. He should have grabbed the serpent by the head, dragged him out of the tree, spun him around, bashed his head on a rock, ripped his head off. That's what he should have done. And instead he sat there watching. Typical guy. Just going to stand here and watch. Oh, you're going to give it to me? Okay, I'll take it off. He, he should have been protecting his wife. He should have been protecting the honor and glory of Christ. But instead, he just stood there and watched. You know, husbands, there's a a warning here for us that we might know our wives and children, the, the weaknesses of those in our household. Know where is their potential sin? Where are they likely to be attacked? Where are their weaknesses? Where are their blind spots? And my job is to shore up those blind spots and to watch them for my wife and children. That should have been Adam's role for Eve. But he abdicated that responsibility and he just stood there with a dumb look on his face until she handed him the fruit and he took and ate. And now we're two chapters and just a few verses into the whole Bible and we've reached the, the conflict point. We've reached that, that pinnacle, that turning point of Scripture. We've the story has really climbed up to this moment, to this conflict. The sure and certain peace that Adam and Eve had known in the garden, the shaky peace in the first six verses becomes a shattered peace. Now they're aware, ashamed, and afraid. Look at verse 7. Their eyes are opened. Their eyes had always been opened. It means they now see and understand. They've learned some things. They knew that they were naked. Notice eating the fruit didn't make, didn't make clothes fall off of them. They just now became aware of the fact that they're not wearing any. They became aware of their condition, aware of their surroundings. And so they sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover up their nakedness. They were aware of their condition. Now they're ashamed of their nakedness. And they do what they can to, to cover it up. Shame does this, right? 
If, if anything, shame drives a wedge between you and others and it makes you look for ways to, to sort of cover up your guilt, to cover up that character flaw that's suddenly been exposed for all the world to see. We look for ways to, to deflect, to hide, to cover up that shame and guilt. They grabbed the biggest leaves they could find and threw together the first set of clothes. They had been literally at peace in their own skin and now the, and, and, and unashamed of their condition. Now they're aware and ashamed and it gets worse. They're now afraid. Because in verses 8 through 10, as God comes walking through the garden, they ran and they hid from Him. They heard Him coming. They heard His footsteps and when God called to them he Adam literally says verse 10 I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid I've messed up this peace I've messed up this trust I've messed up this relationship between me and you you gave a very clear and quite honestly loving command all this fruit except that one And I chose the one. And that peace is gone. That peace is shattered. That peace is ruined. They're aware of their condition, aware of their surroundings, ashamed of their nakedness, and now afraid of what God might do to them. Because you recall, the promise for eating the forbidden fruit was death. The promise was, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve thus far in this chapter aren't dead yet. Like, I read chapter 2 and think, bite, collapse, dead. Like, not even able to hand the fruit to Adam because by the time she hands it to Adam, she's, Eve's already collapsing to the ground. That's how I read, you will surely die. They do die in this passage. They don't die physically, not yet. But that separation, that ruined peace, that shattered peace between them and God is death. It's spiritual death. They absolutely die. So they run and hide as God comes walking in the garden. How did you know you were naked? Verses 12 and 13. They do this. They point fingers. Anybody they can point. Adam says, well, Eve, you gave me. Wait a minute, God. It's not just Eve's fault. You put her here. And Eve, that's what he says, right? The woman you gave me. And Eve says, well, the serpent, he tricked me. He deceived me. It's his fault. Everybody's pointing fingers. Every possible relationship that had been so perfectly at peace in chapter 2 is destroyed right here in a moment. It's shattered. You know how it sounds. Don't look at me. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Don't, don't, look, don't look at me. I didn't... I mean, it... If they hadn't, I wouldn't have. It's not my fault. It's their fault. 
we do that far too often. They had known perfect, sure peace and unity with their Creator. And now, because they've eaten the forbidden fruit, because they've violated God's revealed will, because they've set out to be their own master and commander, because they wanted autonomy, because they wanted to rule their own lives, that perfect peace is shattered. A sure peace, a shaky peace, a shattered peace. But I want you to see something. I want you to see there's also a sworn peace, a promised peace. I had to figure out a way to keep the S going. I don't, it, it worked at the time, not so much now maybe. But a sworn peace nonetheless. There's a, a peace that remains still in Adam and Eve's future. I want to trace for you the grace throughout the rest of this chapter. And I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to work backwards for a reason. Look at verse 22. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. Uh, the Lord, verse 23, the Lord, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. But, but why was he sent out of the garden? The reason is given in chapter 20, in verse 22. Behold, the man is like us, has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then there's that dash in the end of the quotes. And then Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you have to, Moses is quoting God. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. So that part is, is a quote from God, as though the rest of it isn't a quote from God. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like, that's God's sort of verbal language. It's the second time God sort of talked to himself. Now, lest he take and eat from the tree of life and remain in this condition forever. Adam and Eve are dead. If they take and eat from the tree of life, they will live dead forever. It sounds like God saying, lest they become unredeemable. Lest they take and eat and remain in this dead state for the rest of their lives. Okay, it's supposed to sound a little confusing. In other words, it's partly because of God's grace that they're removed from the garden. Yes, it's punishment. Yes, it's consequence for sin. But there's great grace woven into that. There's now a cherubim and a flaming sword so that Adam can never go back in and eat that fruit and live dead forever. There's grace even there. Look at verse 21. Adam and Eve had tried to, to cover up um, their nakedness with um, leaves. Ultimately, God kills an animal to make clothes for our first parents. God shed blood to cover their shame. He kills an animal and uses the skins for, for their clothing. Blood is shed in order to cover their guilt and their shame. There's more. Look at verse 16. 
Again, the promise had been that there would be death and, and there will be physical death. Physical death is coming. Separate, uh, spiritual death, separation from God is, has already happened. Physical death is coming. We're told that, that Adam will return to the dust for dust uh, from the dust he has come and to the dust he will therefore return. They do die spiritually. They will die physically. But notice verse 16. Childbearing is going to be painful. But it doesn't say there won't be childbearing. Not only does Eve not live, but she lives long enough to have children. Man isn't going to end here in the garden. This isn't such the turning point that that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they're dead, and boom, end of the story. You notice there's a lot left in your Bible, right? You know that that you know the story's not over because there's a whole lot of Bible after Genesis chapter 3. Yes, she's going to die. And yes, childbearing is going to be difficult, but there's going to be childbearing. That's actually grace. That should actually be encouragement to us. Recognition that He's going to preserve His people. In fact, for that matter, she's called Eve. Because she's going to be the mother of all the living. That's grace in this passage. Lastly, look at verse 15. Between the serpent and the woman, there is animosity. Uh, I take great comfort, um, almost a biblical command, uh, in being extremely anti-snake. I don't do snakes. I don't stop to do the, well, is the head triangular or not? Does it have pits in it? I don't care. It's a snake. It's dead. Um, I did break that rule one time. It was a pretty cool story. I'll tell you about it later. It doesn't have anything to do with this passage. But there's this animosity, this enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And there's coming a day when she will have a descendant will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, he'll do damage. Yes, he'll cause pain and anguish. Yes, he will draw blood. But a strike to the heel, even from many poisonous snakes, venomous snakes, is not necessarily deadly. I was actually in a church where half of the ruling elder, half of the session, had been bitten by venomous snakes and they were all very much alive so you can you can survive that a strike to the heel is not necessarily a a deadly blow but a blow to the head is intended to be a picture of the destruction of the serpent there's going to come a crushing blow that will strike satan dead The serpent will die and he will pay for his deception. He will pay for his lies. He'll pay for his work. He must suffer and die for what he's done. Christmas is about the celebration of the birth of that seed, of that offspring, of the one who would come 
and deliver that crushing blow. Yes, he bleeds. Yes, he's struck dead. Yes, he, he deals with and bears the, the pain and consequence of sin and death and the agony and shame of our guilt. But he doesn't stay dead. His resurrection on the third day proves that it was just a blow to the heel. That it wasn't permanent damage. It wasn't permanent death for the promised Messiah. But His death, His burial, His resurrection absolutely mean the end of the serpent. Christmas is celebrating the birth of the One who would restore peace between God and man. Christmas is about the, the birth of the God-man who would take on flesh and replace Adam as our covenant head, as our representative before God, as the one who would, in all his sinless righteousness, perfection, would stand before the Father, and we, clothed not in fig leaves, and not even in the skins of an animal, but clothed in his blood, are seen as righteous by the Father. For that matter, even as we come to the table in just a few minutes. We recognize that for us, Advent is as much about anticipating the arrival of Christ the second time. Not so much the first. We aren't waiting on the first. That's already come and gone. We're now waiting on the second. We're waiting for Him to come back when He comes back not as a lamb to be slaughtered, but as a king wielding the sword, riding on a white horse, to save His bride. Celebrate that this Christmas. Let's celebrate not just a baby in a manger, but the birth of a conquering King. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for loving us enough to send Your Son to bear our sin and guilt and shame in our place, for suffering the death that we deserve for our sin. We thank You for Your grace shown even to our failed head, Adam, who though spiritually dying when he rebelled against You, who though facing a sure and certain physical death one day. You didn't end mankind there. Your plan all along was to send Your Son to redeem Your people. Father, we thank You for that grace, for that mercy. And we pray that You would grant us the grace even now to celebrate not just a cute baby in a manger, but that that baby will one day come back again not as a baby, but as a king. As, as the king who would redeem fully and finally his bride and save her from all of his, her enemies. Father, we anticipate the day when we live in righteous perfection with you forever. Would we live this life in a longing hope for that one? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.